throughout the course of my 40s, I'm 52 now, uh, my health deteriorated just terribly. I had um, neurological and psychiatric illnesses. Some of them you would, your listeners would know, like depression uh, had dogged me for many, many years. Um, and I had uh, some bizarre, rare um, neurological diseases. The weirdest one was called idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, hypersomnia just means you're exhausted all the time. And when you do sleep, you do not wake up restored. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life. Let's get started. Friends, today we will speak about fasting. We are going to dive into the world of fasting and answer all those questions that you may have. And my guest is Steve Hendricks. He wrote, the oldest cure in the world. And this is really the history and the science of fasting, as well as his own experiences with the practice. The book grew out of the cover that he wrote for Harper's a decade ago, a long gestation that he hopes has yielded a more complete and livelier chronic of fasting than has been told before. As a matter of fact, I was so fascinated by his book that I decided that this year I definitely want to do a prolonged fast. I hope that you enjoy this episode. And as always, my friends, the full bio and the links to all of my guests can be found on the website, healthylifestylesolutions.org. So welcome, Steve. Great to be with you, Maya. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I'll tell you, um, I did receive a PDF, PDF version of your book. And when I saw the length of it, I said, there's just no way I'm going to be able to read this book, but I want to get through it. So I got the audiobook version, 17 hours plus or so. Am I right? It's a big book. I think you're right. It's like 17 and a half hours or something like that in audio. Yeah, it's not it's not a tiny book. I want to say that I got through about 16 hours of it. It's very entertaining. Uh, for, first question, though, how long does it take to write a long book like yours? Uh, well, it should take longer, but publishers don't want to give you very long these days. So my publisher asked for the book in nine months. I kind of put them off. It took me about um, about two, two and a half years to write the book. And by the time you do all the editing and so on, it's a, it's a three-year book. Um, wow. It's, you know, admittedly, it's a, it is a big book. It's not, you know, a 700 page book, but it's a 400 page book. And it, it is that for, for a couple of reasons. One of which is that um, there's been a lot written about fasting, obviously, but a lot of it is kind of shallow. Some of it's just plain wrong. And I wanted a deeper, more complete story of the history of fasting, the science of fasting, and then my own experiences with the practice. And by the time you weave all that together, yeah, you end up with kind of a big book. But I also hope, because a lot of what had been written about fasting before was a little bit dull, kind of lifeless, for it to be, okay, it's it's a big book, but for it to be page turning and for it to be lively. So I hope I succeeded at some of that. I think it's very entertaining. Like I say, you start really with the history of fasting, where we've seen it throughout life, um, and even in various religions. And it's almost like not quite necessarily a mockery of things, but it's interesting how religions adopt certain practices and never question where it all came from. Um, and I like how you also talk about uh, not only you know, how it is sort of acknowledged in religion as being sort of incorporated into a spiritual practice, but that in medicine, 
we shy away from it just in general. Um, as I was listening, I was looking out for names to hear, you know, just to see if I'm familiar with some of these physicians, which in general, I wasn't because I, I haven't done a lot of history, a lot of studying of fasting, but the name, and we can, you know, talk about this a little bit later as well, but Dr. Sherbert Shelton, I, I knew about because I had Mark Huberman on, who's now the president mm -hmm. of the National Health Association. And you talk about the hygienist group. And I was, I mean, there's just so much to cover. So let's start from the very beginning before we hear about your story. And then we'll talk about how doctors have been impacted throughout history. Can you explain to my listeners before we, before anything else, what is fasting? The water fast? How does that compare to intermittent fasting? How does that compare to just juicing to cleanse? And I mean, there's just many, we can use the word fasting and it can mean so many things like you um, said earlier. Yeah, absolutely right. It's a big question and good questions all. Um, so I, I conceive of fasting, the way I break it down to try to make it simpler for people is there are basically two kinds of fasting. There's daily fasting, which a lot of people know as intermittent fasting, though intermittent fasting can take many forms. But the most common form is you just restrict your eating window to a certain number of hours every day, and you're fasting the rest of the day. The interesting thing about this form of fasting is we all do it anyway. Every single one of us fasts every day. We take our last food at night or whenever we stop eating, we go to sleep, we get up and we eat break fast or whatever in the morning, our first cup of coffee with cream, whatever it is. We're fasting during that period. So this form of daily fasting is just saying, hey, if this fast is potentially healthy for us, this overnight fast, would it be healthier if we lengthen that fast? And that's very fascinating because the science has just blossomed to answer that question over the last five or 10 years. So that's daily fasting. Then there's prolonged fasting, which technically is just fasting for more than one day at a time. Could be two days, could be four days, could be two weeks or four weeks, it depends. Um, but it's just fasting for a longer period. And the reason that people, you know, do longer fasts, this reason they do the daily fast as well, is that what scientists have found, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is that the repairs that our body undertakes all the time occur only at a very low level because it's busy most of the time uh, with all the, you know, the many things that make up our lives. Most of all, uh, digesting the uh, food that we eat each day, processing the nutrients from that food and putting the nutrients to work in cells all over our body. When we give ourselves a break from that uh, very heavy work, our bodies use that opportunity of the rest to undertake repairs that it can't otherwise undertake. And that's why people do the daily fasting to lengthen that repair period, which happens mostly overnight. But then if you do a prolonged fast of a week, two weeks, three weeks, ideally under medical supervision, if you're going that long, um, the, the repairs just go into some supercharged overdrive mode and, and uh, in many cases can reverse uh, a wide range of diseases. So those are the two main forms of fasting. Now, people often ask exactly as you did, water fasting, juice fasting, broth fasting, you know, et cetera. Can I, you know, what exactly is a fast? And the answer is, um, fasting has been defined through history to mean all kinds of things, including all the things I just mentioned. For scientific purposes and for purposes of getting that repair mechanism going, all right, fasting means keeping your body in a metabolic state, 
all right, where it can uh, turn off some of that, you know, digesting, processing nutrients mode and turn on this repair mode. And there are several signs of that, one of which that your uh, listeners are probably familiar with is called ketosis. And that's when the body uses up all the glucose, the stored sugar from the meals, uh, it runs out of that, and then it's got to turn to something else for fuel. Uh, and that's its own fat. Uh, when we break down our own fat, one of the breakdown products of that are these ketone bodies. And when you're running off your ketone bodies, you are in the state called ketosis. So um, you can be in, you will definitely be in ketosis if you do a prolonged fast and you're drinking only water. All right. Uh, many fasting clinics, particularly in Europe, have found that they can give their patients up to about 250 calories a day of mostly vegetable broths, maybe a little bit of fruit juice, maybe a little honey in their tea or something like that, 250 calories a day, you can still be in this fasted metabolism. Um, but the advantage of doing a what's called a modified fast, which is what that 250 calorie a day fast is, is that you have a little more energy. You can go on hikes at some of these fasting clinics. You can do yoga. Uh, you have fewer side effects. Quite often a water fast can be uh, difficult for people and they will have headaches, maybe a little bit of nausea, lower back pain. You might still have those on a modified fast, but they tend to be not as strong. They tend to be much lighter. So doing one of these modified fasts um, uh, is an option that a lot of people like to do. If you're doing a juice fast, most people, when they say that, they're not really fasting because they're taking an awful lot of calories uh, in those juices. I mean, some of those juices are just sugar water, right? With a few nutrients in, but all the fiber, all the other uh, stuff, you know, stripped out of the, the plants that's, that's being juiced. So you might be doing 500, 800, 1,000 calories a day. Fasting doctors tend to refer to these as juice cleanses to, to get across the point that it's not actually fasting. It may be healthy. It may be a good thing to do for a lot of reasons, but it's not fasting and it won't initiate some of those repairs that fasting initiates. So that's kind of an overview. There's so many layers to it, but perhaps that's a good place to start. I want to start from the beginning of your story as well. Tell us why you even were drawn to fasting in the first place. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. One was I had long been interested in what I could do to live a longer life. Uh, and I had, had been drawn at first to caloric restriction, which is just simply eating fewer calories than you would usually need each day. You, you get all the nutrients that you need, but fewer calories. Um, and in uh, virtually every lab animal that this has ever been tested in, it extends their life, you know, uh, and usually a rather incredible amount. They tend to be healthier, have fewer diseases. Uh, and this appears to hold true, at least to some degree in humans. We don't have, you know, a hundred year studies to see whether humans live fast uh, longer or not, but we know that they often suffer less, less disease. The problem with caloric restriction is that it is murder to do because <laughs> you're just hungry all the freaking time. And people who do it say you get used to it, but uh, you know, I never did when I experimented with it. But then as I was looking into caloric restriction, I came across fasting, which is the ultimate caloric restriction, right? Zero calories. Uh, and what I, what I uh, discovered, as people do when they fast, is it is vastly easier to eat nothing than to eat, you know, three quarters of your normal allotment each day. Uh, and that's because these ketones that I talked about, when you burn them, um, they suppress our hunger hormones. So uh, it is uh, quite easy once you get used to fasting 
um, to do it for a while. So that's how I came to it initially. Uh, I really actually kind of got deeper into it though, because like a lot of people, um, when I hit, you know, my adulthood in my twenties, I started putting on a pound, two pounds each year. And by the time I hit my thirties, I was 30 pounds heavier than I wanted to be. So, um, so I did my first big fast, um, which was a fast of 20 days, um, to, to lose weight. I just wanted to take off 30 pounds. Um, and so, and, and I ended up writing about that experience for Harper's Magazine. And that was 10 years ago. And this book sort of grew out of, uh, that story. I, I will say here, fasting can be a very, uh, useful adjunct to weight loss. I mean, it's just, Calories in, calories out. If you're burning calories going about your day and you're not eating, you will lose weight. End of story. Every single person does. Um, however, one of the, the 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 big findings of every fasting doctor and fasting clinic practically that has been around in the last 100, 200 years uh, ha- has been you can you can take off weight, you can reverse diseases, you can do all kinds of great things with a fast. However, if you go back to eating the same thing that you always ate, you're probably going to put the weight back on and you're probably going to, you know, if you were lucky enough to reverse a disease or something or to lessen a disease that you had because you fasted, um, those symptoms are probably going to return. If you go back to eating what may have given you the disease, what may have given you that extra weight in the first place. So I'm, I'm very happy that I fasted for weight loss, but it really wasn't until I switched to a minimally processed whole plant uh, diet um, that I was, you know, truly able to master my weight, and then the the final sort of piece of the puzzle for me was doing this um, daily fasting, eating in a time restricted uh, eating window each day um, that seemed to eliminate a lot of my cravings and take me the final yards. But that's how I got into it in the first place was through longevity and weight loss, like a lot of people. So. I assume that then you've seen significant health improvements, not just the weight loss. Were you suffering with anything else? I think you mentioned headaches. Was there a little bit arthritis? Yeah. So, you know, I didn't have, at the time that I came to fasting, I didn't have, you know, much that I thought was wrong with me. However, throughout the course of my 40s, I'm 52 now, uh, my health deteriorated just terribly. I had um, neurological and psychiatric illnesses. Some of them you would your listeners would know, like depression uh, had dogged me for many, many years. Um, and I had uh, some w- bizarre, rare um, neurological diseases. The weirdest one was called idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, hypersomnia just means you're exhausted all the time. And when you do sleep, you do not wake up restored. Uh, idiopathic means the doctors and scientists don't know what causes it and they don't have a cure. Uh, some people with this disease, I mean, it's just horrible. They, they can sleep 20 hours a day wake up exhausted, stumble around the remaining four hours of the day, just bleary-eyed the way the rest of us feel, you know, in the two minutes before we go to sleep each night. Um, Mine wasn't that horrible, but it was horrible. It had uh, robbed me of my uh, career. My writing had ground to a halt. I was uh, not able to be present really as a father, as a husband, as a friend. It was just awful. I thought my life was, was over. And then what saved me was fasting not because I thought to fast for a cure. I just had had a, a, a really overeating uh, experience one holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And in January, I fasted to take 15 pounds off. And about five, six days into that fast, my symptoms list, uh, lifted for the first time in years. 
uh, I went a whole week for the first time in maybe a decade without having this just crushing fatigue. I was totally stunned. I mean, I obviously knew fasting could heal things, but when when you read the fasting literature, they're talking about somatic illness, illnesses, illnesses of the body, not psychiatric illnesses, illnesses of the mind. You always hear about fasting to reverse high blood pressure or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or diabetes, you know, these sorts of things. So I hadn't expected that fasting could cure my neurological problems. But in fact, it did. And I, I explore that in the book. I look into the science behind it and the history and what we know. It's just, it's very fascinating. The one other thing that I will add is this. When, when that happened, when my just brain fog and fatigue and devastation and depression and everything lifted during my fast, I was faced with the question that fasting doctors have been faced with for centuries, which is simply this. It's if we take the food away and the disease goes away too, was there maybe something in the food that was causing or at least contributing to these diseases? And um, it was a question I hadn't you know, ever addressed full on before in my writings or my practice of fasting, but I dug deeper into what do we know about this? Because I was terrified. I have to break my fast. I have to go back to eating or my disease is going to come back. And what I found, of course, is that fasting doctors for decade after decade have uh, after experimenting, you know, which diets do we feed people on and their diseases stay away, had come around to one version or another of a plant, uh, a whole plant-based diet. Uh, some of them were vegetarian, some were fully vegan. As I did the research, the, the science that most convinced me was a completely plant, 100% vegan, um, minimally processed uh, diet. So, you know, you can have your soybeans as tofu or your, you know, uh, almonds is almond milk, but you can't have, you know, Twinkies and Coke and call yourself a vegan. So I switched to that diet after the fast. And that was uh, nearly four years ago now. That is the longest I've ever been off all these medications and free of illness in my adult life. So, so yeah, I had, I had quite the turnaround with fasting. Very unexpected, but very happy. That's incredible. Wow. How do we know when an individual needs to be supervised and when they can just do this at home? So, um, you know, fasting doctors are themselves divided on who needs supervision for prolonged fast. The daily fasting, you know, eat, narrowing your window, your eating window each day down to as little as six hours and fasting the other 18, everyone agrees that that is safe for all adults um, who, who are healthy or even unhealthy. Although if you're on a medication, you want to talk with your doctor first to see if you might want to adjust the medication. So if you're taking a high super dose of insulin, for instance, you might not want to take that late into your fasting period. It could make you hypoglycemic. Um, but study after study has found daily fasting to be safe. The real debate comes in the question over prolonged fasting. Some fasting doctors with a lot of experience will tell you, if you're healthy, you can fast on your own for up to seven days. Um, no problem. If you have no diagnosis, no suspected illness, and you're not on any medications or supplements, you can fast on water for a week. Don't worry about, you know, running into trouble. However, other fasting doctors, also with a lot of experience, take a different view. And they say, look, yeah, we know that 90-some percent of people can fast a week on their own if they're healthy, all right, and they'll be fine. But there are teeny tiny groups of people who have trouble with fasting because they have some genetic disorder. There are some people who can't actually burn their own fat for fuel. And there are other people who... Uh, have trouble with some of the other breakdown byproducts of a fast. And these 
groups. I mean, they're vanishingly small and most of them know who they are, but they are out there. They do exist. And these people, if they fast, could go into a coma. And if not given treatment soon enough, they could die. So because these people exist out there, some fasting doctors say no one should ever do a prolonged fast multiple days uh, on their own without medical supervision. If you're not healthy, if you have a, a disorder, if you have a diagnosis, if you're taking medications of any kind, even if it's, you know, just a, oh, I'm just taking a little bit of high blood pressure medication. Every fasting doctor I've ever interviewed says you should not do prolonged fast on your own. You should be doing it under the supervision of doctors. Um, and at my, there aren't a lot of these people. There aren't a lot of doctors who know how to supervise a fast. It's a short list, unfortunately. Some of them, however, have started um, doing it uh, uh, remotely uh, online. So you don't necessarily have to travel to a fasting clinic. And you can find a short list of these people at my website, which is stevehendricks.org under the fasting FAQ tab. Um, as for what diseases you'd asked, you know, fasting can, can cure. Um, when Germany's most famous fasting doctor of the last century, Otto Buchinger, was asked this question, uh, he used to answer, um, better to ask me which diseases fasting can't cure because it's a shorter list. It is an incredibly long list. Now, I'll, I'll add one, interject one note of caution here. I say cure, not everyone gets a cure when they fast, but the number of diseases for which fasting can at the minimum relieve the symptoms and make the disease a lesser disease. And if you're lucky and you get to it soon enough and you have, you know, fast under supervision long enough, you might actually get the cure. But I just, I don't want to hold out that fasting is a cure-all for every disease, but it is this long list. It can do stubborn skin diseases like psoriasis and eczema. Uh, it tends to be good with asthma. It tends to be good with allergies. For some reason, doctors aren't sure why, but it is extremely uh, good at reversing a lot of autoimmune diseases like uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis or ulcerative colitis. Um, it's fantastic at reversing high blood pressure. Uh, in fact, the greatest drop that has ever been recorded in the peer-reviewed scientific literature from any therapy for high blood pressure is through a supervised fast of approximately 10 days. Uh, in one study, the drop was 37 over 13 points, which is miles beyond what the best uh, blood pressure pills can achieve. Um, the, the, in that study, the, the people, the hypertensives with the worst blood pressure, stage three hypertension, saw a drop in their systolic blood pressure, the top number in a blood pressure reading of 60 points, six zero. That is completely off the charts from just 10 days of fasting. You mentioned the True North Health Center, this America's largest fasting clinic. That study was at that clinic. It was 10 days of fasting at True North. They walked out of there without high blood pressure. They maintained the gains by switching to a whole food plant-based diet. So it can reverse a lot of things. And before I close this, let me just add one thing about multiple sclerosis. Multiple, we have very credible reports from fasting doctors, uh, both living now and going back about a century, century and a half, saying that when people came to them with multiple sclerosis, they could fast them and the symptoms would get better, all right? That's fantastic. Um, and I think those reports are real. We haven't had a study yet, unfortunately, in humans to kind of suss it out. So it's possible that some forms of multiple sclerosis, like your friend, um, it's possible that fasting could make it worse. That's theoretically you know, possible. In many cases, though, we know it seems to make it better. 
we've seen uh, there's a there's a very interesting mouse study. It was actually done by Walter Longo, this scientist at the University of Southern California, who's excellent, who you mentioned. Uh, he did a, a study where he fasted uh, mice with multiple sclerosis. And um, most of them ended up getting better, but weren't cured. But in 20% of those mice, the MS completely reversed, 100%. To all appearances, the mice were free of multiple sclerosis. So that's extremely promising. But the fact that you know 20% of the mice were cured, but 80% weren't, suggests there's a lot of variability in this disease that we don't understand, and we certainly don't understand, is fasting going to make it better for you, the human being with MS, or worse for you, or have no effect? And that's one reason to fast under supervision when you have an illness, because the doctor can, you know, hopefully, if they know what they're doing, can figure out, oh, this is making you worse. We don't want to put you through this. We'll pull you off the fast. And my girlfriend, as a matter of fact, uh, the last time we spoke, she said, I think I'm going to be taking off the, the fast because she was trying to do a 14 day. But at the seventh day, she was already dealing with symptoms of hypoglycemia. So that's one reason why I've heard people are taking off the fast. And also the other one is the low potassium levels. And so if we're trying to do it on our own and we don't know <laughs> to look for these things, you know, it's not that it's completely unsafe. Would you say it's just better to be to have someone who's watching out and making sure that you're okay? Yeah, em emphatically so. You know, at, at True North, so you know, I have my criticisms of True North, which I discuss in the book. I'm not like a, a, an endorser of any uh, health clinic, but I do think they do a very good job at monitoring people, uh, as mm -hmm. well as many other things that they do. I think they do an excellent job. Um, and you know, there you're being seen by three doctors or nurses. Um, you know. Each, each and every day, you're having your urine and blood taken, um, blood usually once a week, but maybe more if you're having some trouble, urine maybe two, three times a week. Um, and what they're looking for is, you know, are your organs handling this fact, this fast uh, very well, or are they struggling a bit? And the potassium you mentioned, see, when, when you fast, you're breaking down a lot of things and your kidneys have to do a ton of work. So if your potassium takes a dive, right? That may be suggesting that your kidneys are not able to keep up with all the work that has to be done. So maybe you wanted to fast 14 days, but after seven days, your kidneys are under a lot of stress. Well, they can see that, all right? And they can decide, why don't we pull you off the fast? Maybe for a few days, we'll put you on, you know, some, they, they have green smoothies that are low calorie that they feed people. We'll try that, see if your kidneys recover. And maybe we can go back to a fast. If you're fasting at home, you don't know any of that. And maybe your kidneys are just under a little strain when that potassium is going down. Maybe you're actually under a lot of strain. And if you persist, those kidneys are going to be hurt. And we have seen cases in the past where doctors, these weren't fasting doctors, they were just ordinary doctors who were struggling with obese patients. And they were trying to figure out how to get the weight off these people. This was back in the 1960s and 70s. And what they did was, they would fast these people for long periods of time. Often these people had comorbidities like congestive heart failure and some other conditions that most fasting doctors would be reluctant to fast someone with today. But they, what happened was they saw, you know, for instance, the potassium going down or the sodium going down or whatever. They would give the potassium or the sodium, the levels would go back up and they would think, oh, these people are fine. They're cured. Uh, we can keep fasting them. In fact, they had just papered over the problem. They, sure, they had more potassium in their blood, but their kidneys 
which had generated that low potassium initially, were still struggling even with that extra potassium. They were treating the symptom, not the cause. So even if, if and, and what happened was some of these obese patients got killed. They were able to complete their fast. It uh, you know didn't seem to be a problem at the time, but when they refed, their body was not able, their bodies were not able to handle processing the food and either their hearts or their kidneys or something else gave out because they had been strained too much during the fast. So I don't want to be alarmist. Fasting is usually safe for, you know, 99 point some percent of people. It's like fantastic, but it is important to have someone, if you're doing a longer fast, looking over those readings, because you may be doing damage to yourself that you don't even know. So and the, the, the thing I will add to that is I mentioned before I did this 20 day fast, uh, you know, to lose weight uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, I would never do a fast like that now if, if I weren't under supervision. I didn't know at the time, so I did it, and I hope I didn't hurt myself. Um, but now I would never do a fast that long unless I were um, at a fasting clinic or working with a doctor remotely. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I, after reading your book, I feel the same way. I, I really understand. I get it. Okay, so a couple of questions about your experience now. So uh, let me bring it back to the fact that you did a fast, and I don't remember which one it was, but you did a fast, and you were advised right afterwards not to go and eat all these other, you know, meats and other foods, and you thought, you know, that they were prescribing the right way to eat after a fast, only to hear that, you know, give it some time and then slowly begin to incorporate meat and other animal-based foods. That was, I'm sure, pretty disappointing. What exactly is happening? to our body when we're fasting? Yeah. So, you know, the basic process, if you're talking about a prolonged fast of multiple days, <clears throat> your body, your body prefers to run on glucose. That's the sugar from our meals. Um, uh, it will run out of that depending upon, you know, how much activity you have and so on in 12 to 24 hours, your body will run out. And then it wants to switch to fat. The thing is, it doesn't really want to switch to fat. So uh, it starts burning a little bit of fat, but what, what it really wants to do is keep getting glucose. So for, you know, for, it varies, but for most people from about day two to day four of a fast, your body uh, gets that glucose by taking its protein and breaking down its protein and turning the protein into glucose and using that. It's called gluconeogenesis, and it just means making new, new, new glucose. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, labor intensive process for the body, which is why a lot of people feel like crap on days two or day three or day four of a fast. Um, there are other reasons, but that's probably the big one. Now people hear, oh my God, I'm burning proteins. They imagine their muscles shriveling and so on. Doesn't appear to be the case. We don't have, uh, uh, great science to say with hundred percent certainty, but I'll tell you what doctors and scientists think is going on. And that's that during this period, see, your body doesn't break down just everything uh, evenly. It doesn't, you know, if you fast and you lose 10% of the, your weight, your body doesn't break down 10% of your brain. It doesn't break down 10% of your heart or 10% of your liver or so on. It appears very strongly, it appears that it's using junk that it knows it can get rid of, right? So the proteins that it's breaking down the, during this time appear likely to be old and worn out and damaged proteins. And remember, we have proteins in every cell in our body, right? Our hormones are made out of protein. Cell membranes are made out of protein. It's not just muscle. And it all wears out. And, you know, some of it needs to be replaced and recycled. So you burn this protein. And eventually when you refeed, you rebuild it all. 
with new healthy, we think, proteins. So uh, it may actually be a very good thing that you're going through this protein breakdown. But then eventually you get through that and you run you know, almost exclusively on your fat stores. Uh, and this is where the, the, the deeper repairs really start to happen is during this period. And, and, and what's going on inside you while this is happening? Um, oh gosh, it's so many processes. But for instance, um, when your body has been relieved of the work of digesting and process, processing nutrients, as I said, it may start to repair damaged or miscopied DNA. Well, DNA is the instruction booklet for absolutely everything our body does. You absolutely do not want typos in your DNA. So these repairs are crucial to longer life. Uh, it may also uh, repair damaged organelles inside our cells. Um, it will increase the process, your body will, of autophagy. Autophagy just uh, comes from the Greek roots that mean eating the self, and it's the cell's recycling process. It takes these old and warm, worn out parts that are too far gone uh, to be repaired. And rather than just trashing them and getting rid of, rid of them, there's this beautiful recycling process where your body breaks them down and then sends them off to become new, healthy you know, parts elsewhere. So all of these processes increase. Uh, and when they do that, that helps prevent diseases that we uh, don't yet have. And in some cases can reverse diseases that we do have. Now, during the fast, you go through this whole breakdown process, and this gets to the other part of your question. What do you do when you refeed? Well, when you're refeeding, you're rebuilding all this stuff you broke down. Because it's not just a matter of, oh, I got rid of my fat, and when I refeed, I don't want to you know, put the fat back on, and that's all that we're doing is putting fat back on. No, no, no. When you uh, do this fast, uh, you have every, almost every cell in your body is going through some changes. And the refeeding will help uh, rebuild what is occurring in those cells. During a fast, you will start to uh, uh, tell your body will start to tell your stem cells to get ready. And when you refeed, they will be activated. Stem cells, of course, become the other, you know, they can become all sorts of different types of cells throughout the body. But the point is, they're young, they're new, they're healthy, and you want to give them good parts, good tools, good fuel to, to grow on. So that's why it's very important to refeed very healthily. And you're, you're right, Maya, at this one clinic I went to in Germany, and otherwise, I think they're a fantastic clinic. They do so many wonderful things. But one of the things they said was, hey, in this rebuilding stage, you know, it's, it's two crucial weeks here. You want to eat better than you've ever eaten in your life. Eat plants, uh, eat organic, um, do not eat fried and fatty foods, processed foods, meat, dairy, so on. Stay away from that. Hey, but after that two weeks, <laughs> you can go back to that, you know, as you want. Well, sure, you can go back to it. But if, if this is the healthiest diet for us during that refeeding period, doesn't it make sense that it would also be the healthiest diet for us uh, during the rest of our lives? And I, I think the evidence bears that out. There's no, no data that I've seen to support um, eating uh, meat or dairy or heavily processed foods. So, uh, so yeah, you know, one of the wonderful things about a fast is that you get this uh, jumpstart into better health and then you come out of it eating really healthily, that can be a real springboard people often find for going into the rest of their life and maintaining a very healthy diet. Well, I'm curious about you, and I think you said it was about 10 years ago. What does life look like for you today? So you have a small window when you feed, and then when do you do your prolongs? Do you do them once a month, a couple of times a year? 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer the second question because it's the shorter one. <laughs> um, you know, fasting doctors, most of them, they acknowledge, look, we don't have science. To, we don't have studies to say for sure how often you should do a prolonged fast. All right. But we do have 150 years of clinical experience of, with fasting. And what they say is you should probably fast once a year for about a week and see how you feel. Uh, if you are free of, you know, any uh, weird symptoms, you're probably pretty healthy. Quite often when you fast, you develop some, you know, uh, uh, uncomfortable, let's say, symptoms, some headaches, nausea or something like that. Sometimes it's because you are um, you've got some health problem that your fast is kind of trying to rid you of. At least this is the, the theory that they believe. Um, and if that's the case and you're fasting under supervision, the doctor may say, well, you might do a little better if you add another three, four, five, seven days to your fast. Um, so you can make that decision. But but the bottom rule is fast a week, see how you feel. Uh, if it seems good, you're done for the year. That's what fasting clinics mostly say. Me, because I had that very bad health uh, through my 40s, and this was only you know three, four years ago that I got over it. Uh, I fast twice a year, just sort of for a little more maintenance of about a week uh, each time. So that's my uh, yearly plan. And then the daily plan uh, is this. I try most days to take um, all of my food between about 8.30 in the morning and 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that um, not only have uh, scientists found that longer eating windows are healthier, they have also found that earlier eating windows are healthier, which is news to a lot of people. It was certainly news to me before I started researching this book. Uh, I had a few years earlier started eating in a narrower window. My window was always like noon to seven, noon to eight at night. All right. Um, most people do, you know, intermittent fasting that way. It turns out our circadian rhythms have hardwired our bodies, all right, to process nutrients vastly better in the morning and early afternoon than in the late afternoon and in the evening. And we just get worse and worse at it the day as the day goes on. And there's not a whole lot that we can do to change that. So um, give you an example of this. Insulin is probably the best studied mechanism in this. Um, insulin uh, is extremely important because it's the hormone that moves the uh, glucose, the blood sugar from our meals out of our arteries where it doesn't want to linger or we don't want it to linger anyway, and uh, into the cells where it's used for fuel. If it lingers in the arteries, it sits in there and it dings up the arterial walls. They can harden and stiffen, and eventually we get atherosclerosis. We're at higher risk of heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, dementia, a whole bunch of just terrible conditions. All right. So we want uh, you know, to be eating when our insulin is working at its best. It's working great. Our body puts out a ton of it in the morning and early afternoon. By mid-afternoon, it starts to shut down. All right. So you can take uh, pre-diabetics, feed them the exact same meal at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. After the 7 a.m. meal, they're fine. After 7 p.m., their insulin's working so bad that they will test as fully diabetics. You can do the same thing with uh, uh, healthy people, and after a late meal, they will test as pre-diabetic. So I'll give you one. The, 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 the study that just really brought this home to me was this tragic study of 15,000 attempted suicides in Sri Lanka, which has just been completely devastated by the global market. Most of the people there are, uh, a great many of them are farmers and they've just been ruined and they try to commit suicide by drinking pesticides. What the study found was that the people who attempted suicide in the morning were twice as likely to die 
than people who took the pesticide in the evening. The reason was, was that the people who took it in the morning, their uh, body had just so efficiently processed and pushed through their you know, entire system these pesticides that by the time they were found and rushed to a hospital, it was too late to save them. In the evening, the body was so bad at processing this nutrient, for lack of a better word, this poison, that, um, that by the time those people were found and taken to a hospital, they could often be saved. So this is true of everything in our body that, that we, well, I, I probably am overstating the case to say everything, but this is true of a massive number and a massive number of kinds of nutrients that we process. So to make a long story short, what scientists have found is that uh, eating in an earlier window, getting all your food within, say, six to eight hours after you wake up, you know, maybe starting an hour or two after you wake up. So for me, that's about 830 to 230 each day is healthier than eating later. Now, that sounds miserable to some people. It did to me. I thought that was horrible, but I, I tried it and I found that actually it feels great. I had more energy. I loved it so much um, that it has been no trouble for me to stick with, but I'm very lucky. I work at home. My wife is a, a professor. She has a very flexible schedule. We, you know, our son is uh, gone and off to college, so we don't have to feed a kid at night. You know, it, it works for me because I'm very, very, very fortunate. For people who aren't so lucky or who just don't want to do it, um, there seems to be a compromise. And that compromise goes along with the old adage to eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. And that is stack your calories earlier in the day. And the scientists believe that you will get, even if you're eating in a 12-hour window that runs from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you'll get many of the benefits of a shorter, earlier window because you'll be taking the bulk of your calories at a time when your body is best able to process them. So just have your dinner, but just keep it light and, you know, on the early side if you can. Wonderful. There's so many other questions I want to ask you, but I, I was wondering if you can give my audience a little history that you touched on this a lot on your book. And you're very passionate about the fact that many physicians either do not embrace this as a healing kind of modality, the idea of fasting, or those that have throughout history have been sort of punished in many ways for it. So your book, The Oldest Cure in the World, addresses that. Can you tell us just a little bit about um, what physicians have had to endure, the challenges when it comes to uh, fasting? Yeah. So, you know, particularly in the um 19th century and 20th century of America, <clears throat> up until probably the you know 1990s or thereabouts, um, fasting doctors were persecuted. Uh, most of these were um, not MDs, not medical doctors, because fasting was not welcome in uh, conventional medicine. Uh, they were chiropractors or osteopaths or naturopaths. Uh, and in the United States, um, particularly in the 20th century, they were just hounded out of existence. Um, doctors would team up with prosecutors to uh, prosecute these, uh, you know, chiropractors for fasting people. Uh, and it was extremely successful and it drove, you know, one practitioner after another, you know, out of business. Uh, it's a real shame uh, because that's not true everywhere. Uh, if you go to Germany, for instance, most of the fasting doctors there across the 20th century were in fact MDs, they were medical doctors. They were people who had somehow seen the power of fasting quite often because they had an illness themselves and had gotten cured by, uh, by going to a fasting clinic uh, and decided that this was uh, a very valid 
uh, medical therapy that needed to be uh, explored and needed to get out to people. And that's partly why, you know, fasting clinics are so much larger and more widespread in Germany. Uh, you know, the, the largest fasting clinic there has, uh, I believe they've had 400,000 patients over the course of their history, 250,000 of them fasting, the rest of them on a, uh, a low calorie diet. So, um, you know, you, you want to sort of have to ask as you're, you know, looking at the research or reading my book, why in the world was this um, such a, uh, was fasting so persecuted in America, but not in Germany, for instance? And one of the reasons, one of the reasons just happenstance, you know, if, if it had happened that a half dozen medical doctors in America had gotten well through fasting and started big practices, we'd probably have a different history. But a piece of it is um, our medical establishment is extraordinarily threatened by fasting. Uh, and this goes way back beyond, you know, previous to the 20th century. Um, there was a there was a, a theory of medicine in particularly the early 19th century called he heroic medicine. And the name says it all. The hero of that story wasn't really the medicine. It wasn't the patient getting better. It wasn't whatever, you know, pill or procedure was being used. It was the doctor. The doctor was going to come in and save the day and save the patient. This was at a time when medicine was a disaster. I mean, medicine killed more people than, than it saved in the early 19th century. It really wasn't until antiseptic practices were developed at mid-century and uh, procedures starting getting better till when you went to see a doctor, you at least had a 50-50 chance in the second half of the 19th century that he was going to help you more than he was going to hurt you. But so this was a time when doctors um, were imbued with this idea that they were the saviors. Um, and you, you can certainly understand if someone comes in and says, okay, I know you've had however many years it was back then of education in all this fancy theory uh, and in how to practice and, you know, you developed all these skills and someone walks in and says, you know what, actually, if we just don't give them, you know, that poison, which you're calling medicine, <laughs> and it really mostly was either poison or just benign or relevant, did nothing back in those days. If we just don't give them that and just let the body heal itself, not feed it, uh, more patients will get better, which was in fact the case. It was a very hard thing for doctors to hear. Uh, and it has continued to be a very hard thing for doctors to hear, even, even though uh, medicine is much more enlightened today than it was back then. Now, let me close on this by saying, like, I am a big fan of Western medicine for a whole bunch of different things. I have had God, I don't know, eight or nine orthopedic surgeries. Fasting is not going to fix a torn ligament, right? Uh, acute crises in particular, Western medicine does a great job of dealing with, right? However, it does a terrible job, and I'm by no means the first person to say this, with prevention, right? So um, we have with uh, fasting a very useful preventive, and in some cases also uh, something that can reverse diseases. And I, you know, it's just going to take time and repetition uh, and more patients coming to doctors saying, well, what about fasting instead of doing treatment X, Y, or Z? Eventually, you know, one would hope that that would mean that doctors would get the message and start to accept it. Little by little, we have been seeing that. You know, uh, Alan Goldhammer, the chiropractor who runs the True North Health Center in Northern California that we've talked about, uh, likes to say, you know, a few years ago, we were criminal quacks. Now I've got the, the, the researchers from the Mayo Clinic, you know, coming to do research with me. I've been hiring MDs on my staff who want to come and fast 
patients because they've worked all their careers. You know, they've never seen a diabetic get well. They just give them insulin. We fast them and their diabetes reverse. And they think that's the coolest thing in the world. So some doctors are coming around, but boy, it's a, it's a long, long road. I agree. And that's why I always tell my listeners that we can't wait till our health professionals are on board. We have to take control of our health. And this is a wonderful book that you've written. I encourage everyone to go out and get a copy. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, your book is full of it's a lot of storytelling and very in a entertaining way that keeps you well, I was listening to the book. So it keeps you very intrigued and entertained. And you're wondering what's next? Is this the answer? And it's almost I, I guess your your um, background as a reporter kind of has you write things in some ways, very unbiased, because I'm thinking that you're finally this is the answer that you're suggesting. And you're saying, well, wait, and you're present almost like both sides of the story of whatever it is that you're addressing. And um, it, there's so much content in it that I have to go back and revisit, especially when you're talking about Dr. Walter Longo's work, because I thought that maybe he had the most recent science and that he had a true solution. And you're saying, well, not necessarily. Um, so you you invite us to kind of be um, to really think about things, think about the history of, of fasting, how it's always been there for various reasons, and then different programs that currently exist. We see the benefits of fasting. And then you even talk about like, I think the one question that I would have for my for my listeners is when do we know that we're ready? Well, it certainly helps to know the benefits of fasting, right? Because heck, we all like to eat, right? My goodness, I just said don't eat late at night. I was the worst late night eater in the world. I mean, I love the 10 p.m. bedtime snack, right? So uh, what changed me was simply knowing the facts, right? Knowing the science. I'm like, holy cow, I have probably been hurting my body all this time. Kind of like to live long enough to see grandchildren and, you know, be able to hike when I'm 85 and so on. So that would be one step I would say is educate yourself and, and, and see if it convinces you. Um, that's a big reason of why I wrote the book. You know, the, the other thing that I would say is start small. Um, it's like exercise. Uh, you know, you may be impressed with the health benefits of running a marathon, but that doesn't mean you should go out and try running 20 miles tomorrow, right? Go out and walk around the block and see how it feels. If that feels good, two or three days later, try a little jog around the block. And if that feels good for a few weeks, add another block, right? Same thing with fasting. You know, these, these eating windows, some people like to just go whole hog, you know. So let's say we know most people are eating, according to studies, in a 14 or 15 hour window each day. So if I say go to a six hour window or an eight hour window or something like that, that's going to be a huge change for people. Now, some people love doing that. I want to do it all and go, go overboard. You have to know your own personality. And if that's you, try it, see what happens. But for most people, the advice that scientists tell me is, look, if you're eating in a 14 hour window, you know, first of all, figure out what your eating window is. And it's anything caloric, anything that's above five calories. That's one and a half grapes. That cream in your coffee, that counts. So um, if you're doing that, figure out your window and then just try, you know, for a few days or a week, knock half an hour or an hour off that window each day. That feels good. A week later, knock another hour off. Just keep shrinking that window until you reach a point where it's like, all right, that's about as much as I'm comfortable with and call it good. We start to get health benefits in a daily eating window of anything under 12 hours. And the benefits keep growing with every reduction of that 12 hours down to at least six hours. Might get more benefits in a shorter window than that, but we don't have science to say one way or another. We just don't know. 
So, you know, just just find a place that's happy for you. If it turns out that it's only a, you know, a 10 hour window and you don't get down to a six hour window, don't beat yourself up, right? That's great. You're starting to get benefits at 12 hours. So 10 hours, fantastic. Um, you know, it was a, 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 a far sight better than the 14 hours that you might've been eating in. So I would just say, be really gentle with yourself. This is one of those changes where you can make little gradual steps and, and many people start to notice an impact after a couple of weeks, particularly when you get down to 10 or eight hours or so. People are like, wow, you know, I just seem to have more energy. Uh, and um, if you're one of those fortunate people, then that will be its own motivation and will keep you going. A while back, there were these trending videos on, on YouTube of people showing how they, inter they do the intermittent fasting. And what they do is they restrict, as you're saying, and then when they refeed, it's like gorging. It's just like, like, let me eat. I'm going to make up for what I didn't eat all day. Because what I've seen them do is they, they'll refeed in the evening, which is contrary to what you're saying. The science is recommending that most of our calories be early in the morning. But these trendy videos show that people refeeding in the evening and just all the calories that are restricted during the day that are now kind of just gorging, just, you know, just eating all this food. And I'm thinking there's got to be something wrong with that. Like, but there's so much misinformation when it comes to intermittent fasting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've uh, not seen those videos, but I've heard of people doing that. And yeah, from, from what we know, and I, you know, I can't, I don't have a study that I can point you to that would show, show anything about this. But from what we know, that's, that's going to be extremely unhealthy and, you know, certainly unhealthy just simply because you're taking most of your calories between a lot of those people are doing it between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Uh, when your digestive and processing, your nutrient processing mechanisms are all shutting down. So it'll be unhealthy for that reason. In general, probably not healthy to gorge. Uh, I can't say with absolute certainty, but um, we do know that that's unhealthy after a prolonged fast. If you were, you know, gorging yourself, uh, and people do it and survive, uh, but if you were gorging yourself that way after a two-week fast or something, um, you could enter this thing called refeeding syndrome, which is when your body basically just freaks out from being, you know, having going from no food to going to a super abundance of food just, you know, in 12 seconds flat. So, um, you know, you're, you're not going to kill yourself if you fast 16 hours and then you, you know, have a big pig out. <laughs> but my, my suspicion would be that you would be undoing many of the benefits that you would get from that longer fasting period when you eat that way after you break your fast. Why do we say refeeding, especially when we talk about fasting? It's, that's interesting. I have no idea. If I had to take a wild guess, I would say because of research on animals. So when they, you know, fast, you know, uh, mice, for instance, and then they feed them afterwards, they use the word feed. And it's possible that in the scientific literature that's used so often that it's just gotten, you know, when we talk about fasting in humans, it's gotten transferred over. So right. it's a wild guess, maybe. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like uh, my listeners to know? Anything we didn't cover? There's so much. I, we really just need to go and buy your book and read it again. <laughs> At least for me, I need to read it again. Well, I won't argue if people do that. But <laughs> for people who want to know more, who have more questions, I tried to answer um, the most frequently asked questions I get on my website. Um, it's, uh, again, stevehendricks.org. And there's a tab there, Fasting FAQ. And in that frequently asked questions, I've got probably... 
10,000 words of, um, you know, answers to the most frequent questions. Uh, there's also at the very end, there's a little thing there. It says, still have more questions. Click on this link to go to uh, an ask me anything that I did on Reddit a few weeks ago, which has even more questions and answers from people. Some of them kind of comical and, uh, but most of them really helpful. Well, wonderful. We're, I'm going to um, definitely document this when I do it myself, because I do have to prepare, especially when I'm not working too much so that I can do this. And hopefully one day I'll get to one of those clinics where I can be supervised as well. But your book definitely motivated me to go ahead and, and do this. So I want to thank you for your work and for spending time with us today talking to my listeners. Thank you, thank, Steve. Thanks, Maya. And thank you for your work. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave an honest review as well at ratethispodcast.com forward slash HLS. This helps us to spread our message. And as always, thank you for being a listener.